There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. John Fogarty, legendary singer and songwriter of Credence Clearwater Revival, rocks Wolf Trap in Virginia this Saturday night. He joined me to discuss his most iconic hits, including Proud Mary, Bad Moon Rising, Green River, Down on the Corner, Fortunate Son, Up Around the Bend, Have You Ever Seen the Rain, and so many more. Hi, Jason. This is John. John Fogarty, hey, thank you so much for joining us on WTOP in Washington, D.C. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Legendary singer-songwriter, founder of Credence Clearwater Revival, as well as all of your solo stuff over the years, uh, because you're going to be coming and playing it all at Wolf Trap in Virginia this Saturday, August 19th. It's a rare chance for someone to see uh, our, our listeners to come see a legend like you. Um, So re- remind me, um, it, this is like a bit of a celebration tour for you, right? Like I remember seeing a few months ago that, that you just got the rights back to all your CCR songs earlier this year. It only took like 55 years or something, but <laughs> we've seen, you know, Taylor Swift re-record her stuff with her, you know, publishers and all that stuff. But like, how excited are you that you have your catalog back? Uh, that That's exciting. Oh, well, any songwriter will tell you that it's like finding your children, you know, um, I've been, it's a, it's a thing I've been fighting for, as you say, of 50 plus years, um, you know, way back in the day, you don't even realize that you're giving up the rights to your songs. You just think that, uh, you know, some sort of, uh, human sort of, uh, arrangement will prevail, but that was not to be the case. And I got pretty um, agitated about it back in the day, you might say. And I've proceeded to try and get those rights back for a long, long time. Um, U.S. law, copyright law being what it is, it just meant I was going to have to work on it a long time. And really here at, at the uh, at the home stretch, my wife, Julie, is the one that really made it happen now it could have dragged on for another several years but she just kept kind of chipping away at it and I finally got the rights back now I'm really really happy about it it's it's a it's like finally something just falling into place the stars getting aligned you know and life is good and it gives you sort of a, a a fresh happy way of Uh, thinking about Proud Mary and all those other songs that I wrote. And uh, so we're calling this tour, it may be called this for the rest of my life. I don't know. We're calling it Celebration because of the uh, fact that that I'm now owning my songs for the first time in my life. And um, it, it just puts a kind of an extra spin on the performance, of course. 
That's so great. Now, just to clarify, were you, this is like, you know, the publishing rights, or I guess whenever they stream or an album or a song, you know, something gets downloaded or sells, but were, were you in all that time, all those 55 years, you were, you, you were still allowed to, were you still allowed to play them live, right? You just didn't get any, I guess, money when it sold. Is that right? Uh, well, it, it meant you, you don't own the song. You don't own right. the copyright. Therefore you, um, you are not the one that gets to decide where and how that song's going to be used, you know, like in a right. movie or a God forbid a commercial, you know, Hey, yeah. let's have a Cretan song for agent orange. How about that? Or maybe <laughs> for uh, I don't know, for a, a neutron bomb or something. Right. I mean, you know, the, the uses uh, somebody else was making those decisions or maybe a uh, son of the swamp thing. That was always one of my favorites. <laughs> couldn't oh my couldn't be in the real swamp thing. You had to be in the son of the swamp thing. Um, and so now I'm the one that gets to decide that, Hey, hell yeah. I want to be in the swamp thing. Uh, I'm joking, but it, <laughs> it means I get to, to decide the, nice. those issues, but yeah, it was never a question of, uh, whether or not I could perform the songs. In fact, I've been performing them well for the last 20 something years. Um, and happily so. Uh, and, uh, you know, so they, they can't keep you from performing, but they certainly yeah. somebody else was owning the song and deciding how the song would be used. Well, now when you play them live, if our folks come to see you at Wolf Trap, they'll hear you sing them live, but there'll be an extra, you know, celebratory uh, smile on your face, a little extra pep in your step as you sing those words. Because like you said, it's, these are your babies that your kids have finally returned home. <laughs> That's great. That's well, right. I would love. I would love to give our listeners because there's I mean, I would love to give them a, a little, you know, cool backstories on some of those big hits. Um, it, it's a, it amazes me how, you know, the CCR, I guess you formed in Cali in like 68 brother Tom on rhythm guitar, Stu Cook bass, Doug Clifford drums, like the original lineup. But it always amazes me how many hits you all rattled off in a relatively short amount of time. You know, it wasn't a decades long band, but like, man, you the you were writing your face off, sir. If you, you were like, I don't know what you're having for breakfast every day, but you were writing hit after hit. Um, So I would love to go through a couple of them, if, if you don't mind. Like, I know on that first self-titled album, Karina's Clearwater Revival in 68, there was Susie Q and and I put a spell on you. Um, well, you know, uh, I'll, I'll go back a little bit, Jason. Um, I started writing songs probably before I was eight years old, but the one I remember when I was eight years old, I was about the third grade, just as I went out the door to walk to school, because my little uh, uh, grammar school was, you know, just a few blocks from my house. And I was listening to the local rhythm and blues station because actually it was before they had a thing called rock and roll. And so uh, I was listening to R&B and I had just heard a commercial uh, for some sort of uh, laundry product, right? And the DJ said something like, have you got the wash day blues? Now, remember, this is a channel, a radio station that played a lot of blues. That was part of the lexicon. I mean, the artists were Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, you know, people like that. Yeah. And so uh, you heard that term a lot. And somehow that stuck in my head as, oh, oh, and all the way to school, I was thinking about wash day blues, you know, remember I'm eight years old. I mean, it's yeah. not a real profound subject, but I started writing this little ditty and it went to the tune or the music 
of the old uh, Muddy Waters Willie Dixon riff, you know, the one that goes dan, 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 that thing. And so I was putting my words of Wash Day Blues to that music as I uh, walked along to school. Um, And the only reason I bring that up is, you know, from that point, certainly forward in my life, all through uh, lower school and then uh, junior high, et cetera, starting a little rock and roll band. I was writing songs. Uh, some of them were, you know, songs with lyrics and a lot of other times it were guitar songs, you know, instrumentals. Um, but I, you know, I, I've studied or listened to or was really curious about all the great songwriters in history, you know, not just the guy that was uh, currently the say, whoever wrote Hound Dog, which was probably Lieber and Stoller, but all all through time, like Bogie Carmichael, or my mom would talk about Irving Berlin or people like that. And I was just curious about the process because I was a kid and realizing that whatever I was doing was not like what they had done. I, I just figured, well, I'm learning. I'm I'm learning. I'm trying to get better, right? course the second album bayou country had born on the bayou but uh and proud mary tell me about for a deep dive proud proud mary because you know tina turner just passed away and she famously covered it i guess kenny chesney even quoted rolling on a river with credence but uh but yeah just tell me about writing proud mary and and thoughts on tina's passing as well so i had been writing songs you know most of my life realizing that again that i'm an amateur when compared to somebody like lennon and mccartney or you know whoever um and it was the right at the height of the Vietnam War. Um, and I had been drafted. I'd gotten myself into the Army Reserves. Uh, I was just starting to, to, I don't know, get get into sort of the, the current or the modern um, iteration, let's say, of a rock and roll band. We were finally starting to kind of gel and actually sound like something yeah um and i was very much uh trying to i was uh, i was finding a conflict with my army reserve duty and i was trying to figure out a way to get discharged so that i could actually look like a rock and roll person uh meaning long hair my appearance and all that and not an army guy uh and also be able to go away on uh, weekends which is when the reserve meetings would be. And there were, that was another conflict. So I had been working on trying to get my uh, my discharge, right? Yeah. So one day, uh, right on the steps of my little apartment house, there I find my uh, honorable discharge from the army. And so I was uh, very, very excited about that. I was so <laughs> excited that it meant a new freedom in my life. Uh, I actually turned a little cartwheel on the little patch of grass that was out in front of the apartment house. <laughs> and then I, wow, I just was so excited. I ran in the house, picked up my guitar, started strumming these chords. It was a Rickenbacker guitar, by the way, so that you could play it without being plugged in, but it still kind of made some acoustic sound. And I, the first thing out of my mouth was, left a good job in the city, working for the man every night and day. Well, of course, I was, me, I was talking about the Army, but uh, 
it, it, you know, I've kind of put it into a universal context, you might say. Well, within about 25, 30 minutes, I had finished almost the whole song of Proud Mary and written it down, you know, gotten it organized on a uh, piece of uh, yellow legal pad, you might say. I used to use those kind of yellow tablets with uh, some sort of a weird felt pen. Um, and I'd written the whole song out and realized that, you know, and it was called Proud Mary. And I was sitting there realizing I had composed my first really good song. Like all those people that I was just referring to who were so far above me, you know, were way up there in the professional ranks. And this was the first time I ever felt this way. I said, man, this is a standard. This is a real classic song. I could see that it was uh, far better than anything I had ever done before. So that's why I told you all that stuff in the background, because somehow I had stepped into a another dimension, you know, and the dimension where um, good songwriters live, I guess you'd say. And I was pretty scared and, and trembled, excited and everything else. And that's sort of the backstory of Proud Mary. Thank you for that backstory. And it makes sense because, you know, it's like you're saying that that's fascinating to hear that that was your when you called it your first really great song that you wrote. Because, yeah, like um, the the earlier album, you know, like I put a spell on you was, you know, Screaming Jay Hawkins and Susie Q was what Dale Hawkins. Like, yeah. But so, uh, yeah, you did some really, really killer covers. But but yeah, by that second album with Proud Mary, it was your turn to write the original. And then ironically, that would get covered by Tina Turner. Funny how that works out. Um, um, we'll take me into the third album really quick. Green River. I love that title track and how, you know, the well, -na -na -na. <laughs> it's so good. It also had Lodi <laughs> stuck in Lodi again. One of the great, like a visual storytelling song of being sort of trapped in a town. And, and of course, Bad Moon Rising. There's a bad moon uh, on the rise, often misquoted. There's no bathrooms on the right, folks. But There's um, a bathroom on the right. Yeah, what the heck? Why do people? I don't know why people well, think that. <laughs> um, well, kind of what happened is after Proud Mary and realizing I I finally sort of fallen into a a place that that felt real. It felt really warm and comfortable, like a great plaid shirt. You know, it <laughs> just it just it it just felt like me. It, it felt. It felt like what I had been trying to find my whole life, and I finally found it with Proud Mary. It was this sort of, um, you know, it had a little bit of Mark Twain in it. It had a little bit of Americana. They didn't have that word yet, but um, right. it was that sense. By the way, I happen to be sitting in Atlantic City right now, and I believe that's the Thunderbirds, the jet plane outfit roaring back and forth i think they know that we're doing an interview <laughs> i love so, it <laughs> well yeah. you know get your makeup I mean, I on and fix your hair out pretty as, as big... springsteen wrote you're in atlantic city now so <laughs> um yep. hey bruce, hey, bruce. Um, yes. anyway so proud mary and born on the bayou were starting to sort of come off the charts and i wanted to stay on the radio and so without an album, just a single came out, uh, Bad Moon and the other side was Lodi. Um, anyway, continuing on, uh, by the time I got to what was going to be the third single that year, Green River, I, I just kind of went back and wrote about this place 
that I had gone when I was a child many, many times with my family. It was actually a place called Puta Creek, that's P-U-T-A-H, I believe, uh, up in Northern California. Um, but I, I kind of transformed it, transmogrified it into uh, green, the Green River and wrote about all those things that were part of that scene, you know, in my childhood. Uh, most of those, I mean, most of those things are all actually factual things, part of Green River. Uh, it, it was just a, it was just a favorite thing to me. And the musical setting, as far as I was concerned, at least at the time, was very much like the old Sun Records. You know, I just kind of pictured a bunch of those guys in in one room, all playing at the same time to a certain kind of groove, and. Uh, it, that that groove became Green River. I love it. And the rest of us were dancing in the moonlight uh, there on. I love it. Um, all right. Fourth album, Willie and the Poor Boys. Down uh, That obviously the title they, that comes back in the song Down on the Corner, you know, bring a nickel, tap your feet, seeing Willie and the Poor Boys. Um, tell me about re recording Down on the Corner. Is, was that like a did you know a group called Willie and the Poor Boys? Is that based on some sort of street corner singing group or something? Uh, I think it's the way um, artists and songwriters work. One day I was over at my brother Tom's house. I think we were going to go to uh, some kind of performance a little later, but we had a an hour or so to just kind of chill. And uh, I think he was putting strings on his guitar, perhaps. And I opened the newspaper. I, if Daddy, what's a newspaper? But anyway, um, <laughs> I opened the newspaper and there was this full page ad remember this is before internet or youtube or any of that yeah. apparently the disney company was re-releasing um of this this thing and so the top of this full page ad in the newspaper said super poo package right okay and then there was a picture of winnie the and they had, I don't know, I guess, I don't know what the format would have been in those days, because this is before VHS. I have no idea. This is about 1968. Yeah. So I don't know what it would have been. Perhaps, perhaps actually motion pictures, you know, eight, eight millimeter uh, um, film. Yeah. Uh, but it's called Super Poo Package. And I, of course, I loved Winnie the Pooh way back um especially with my daughter Kelsey we had a, a pretty much a secret club that her and I were in of Winnie the Pooh was our guy right and all the <laughs> other characters but anyway um so seeing that I thought about oh Winnie the Pooh wow Winnie the Pooh what if Winnie the Pooh had a little band what if he like played music why wow, be winnie the pooh and the and the pooh boys oh winnie and the pooh boy uh no winnie, well probably don't want to use an actual product because then everybody will think it's winnie the you know then it somehow morphed you know over time into willie and not the pooh boys but the poor boys and uh oh okay so i started writing a song based on those characters uh, it took me a while to come up with the little riff the the musical riff that is the kind of signature of that song 
but I started at least visualizing a band playing down on the corner. You know, I didn't even have a, it was, it was in the beginning, Willie and the poor boys. And eventually you come up with the, I, I mean, how many times do other people say down on the, you know, out in the street, down on the corner, you know, but yeah. nobody thinks to, to write that down and make it part of the, the song or the signature, but I did, you know, that's and eventually um, messed around musically coming up with do, 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 do. You know, it, it had to have a certain kind of lilt to it to make it uh, certainly different from Green River. It had to sound more like a little street band. Uh, and eventually, um, you know, that, that magical antenna that I had, uh, it tuned very well, and certainly during those uh, few wow. months or years, uh, things w were just happening at, at, a, at a lightning pace. It was amazing. I'm Bradley Trainer, And I'm Don McClain. We have a podcast called Blinded by the Item. A blind item is gossip about a celebrity with their name left out. It's a guessing game, and you can play along. The item might be like, this A-list star carries a Birkin bag worth more than the average person's house to the gym to work out. Pretty sure that's J-Lo. And P.S. The person behind all of this is Chris Jenner, LLC. We drop a new episode every weekday so the fun never ends. Blinded by the Item. Listen wherever you get podcasts and watch us on the Blinded by the Item YouTube channel. And then I know that same album had Fortunate Son and you mentioned sort of your your joy at, you know, the honorable discharge getting out of going, you know, the Vietnam and all of that stuff. But I tell me, I, it's, I always find that song fascinating. We mentioned Bruce and in, in born in the born in the USA, sort of similar. Both those songs are almost misinterpreted and played as like some sort of like patriotic anthems in, in all these movies and Forrest Gump and the rest. But like there's sort of. I don't know if I, if you want to call it anti-war or just like at least anti-privilege. You know, it ain't me. I ain't no senator's son, military son. Like, um, talk about how that's sort of. I don't know. That's that's always sort of um um ironic to me how how they're sort of played patriotically in a way. But if you listen to the words, it's 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 some pretty you know searing, subversive social commentary. You know. Well, I originally. Uh, being being uh, brought up, raised in a kind of lower middle class um, economic situation, you know, um, in other words, common people are very suspicious of, let's say, privileged people. It's just it's just inherent because there's, you know, there's ever so many more lower class people than there are rich people. Um, and it just seems an unfair situation when you watch, you know, some of the things that go down in society, but especially the one at that time was if you would, there was a war going on and there was a draft. And so every 18 year old male, at least in America was under that um, threat uh, all the time. And so you're, you're dealing with that as a kid. And yet, you're seeing on the news, here's Senator so-and-so getting his kid, who's just turned 18, into some cushy deferment. Either he, get, he gets into a, you know, an Ivy League school, or he gets him a cushy desk job somewhere that's, uh, that keeps him out of the draft, or certainly out of harm's way. And it doesn't seem fair. It just seems another misuse of privilege 
um, wealth and power. And uh, since most of us are not living in that situation, we're very suspicious, critical of, of looking at that. And that's how I felt. And especially having been also in the military, it kind of gave me an even broader sort of perspective about all of that situation, you know? Um, I mean, it was just a, a it, was, it was a remarkable place to be for a young man. But for instance, um, during the, the great protests of the late 60s, of course, I mean, I saw situations even where, you know, some hippie would be spitting toward uh, a soldier who was in uniform, right? But I would always tell him, don't you realize that guy you're spitting at is 18 years old? He feels the exact same way you do, you know? He's not like gung-ho uh, G.I. Joe. He doesn't want to go over there and get shot. He's a kid, just like you, you know? Unfortunately, he couldn't get out of the way of the draft and he got uh, snagged. I mean, that's just the way that was. So I I wrote that song uh, in a very, very angry uh, stance about the unfairness of class and also of the unfairness of the selection for that war. I mean, the older I've gotten, I don't know how old you are, Jason, but the older I've gotten, the more uh, you can see how many of these wars that we've been involved in are really just business decisions that some tycoon wants to uh, own all the oil over there in Iraq or some other place like that. And uh, therefore they use, they send all the kids over there to uh, take care of that business for them. Um, yeah, well, I'm... yes, I happen to be a diet in the wool liberal, but that is how I see it. And uh, so far I haven't seen anything to dissuade me. So I wrote that song that definitely saying, it ain't me, it ain't me. I ain't no fortunate son. Um, the funny thing is, you, you mentioned the patriotism thing. This is, this is really ironic. So um, at the time, since it was very much an anti-war stance, you would have probably thought at least that a general, uh, you know, or maybe a politician who has a dog in the race, uh, probably is not on your side. He probably doesn't like the uh, point of view that's stated in the song, Fortunate Son. And I kind of felt that way, you know, as I got older, even though uh, I had done my military duty and I, you know, I, I uh, was considered a veteran, even though I didn't go to Vietnam, of course. Um, and as time went on, like you say, the, the song got used in a lot of movies and things, almost you know, as, as, how can I say it? Beca the song became used in a sort of ironic way in movies like Forrest Gump, let's say. And there came a time um, much more recently, it was during the Obama administration, and they wanted uh, to have me as part of the entertainment. I think it was for Veterans Day, as a matter of fact during one of the years of uh, Obama's uh, term in office. And so I thought, okay, well, but I want to come and sing Fortunate Son. So I let him, you know, know well in advance. <clears throat> and it was, you know, I was waiting for some sort of censure or, or you know, um, and it, I mean, it, this is just the, the journey of what a wonderful country we really are. 
So there was a slight pushback. Somebody sent back a communication. By then, there's email and all that, so it's much quicker. And but it it was only pushed back for about five minutes, and then th there was a correction, and you know somebody at a at a different level come. No, you know what? Whatever John wants to sing, that's fine. And I think I did two or three songs, something like that. Willie Nelson was also there, and and so I got to join in and do a couple songs with Willie. Um, and so then comes the day of the actual event, right? <laughs> and it's Veterans Day, and we're on uh, in a tent on the White House lawn, and there are military everywhere because we're honoring the military, right? Right, right. And there are four-star generals and and everything else on down the chain, right? And so I get up and I do a Proud Mary and probably another song. And then we start the, the drum rip off. My drummer was Kenny Aronoff at that time, a wonderful drummer. And then I go into the guitar lick and now they all know what it is. And all these guys are standing up and singing along and they've got the fist in the air. It ain't me, it ain't, you know. And I just thought, man, this is, this is the greatest thing ever. Because Rather than being um, intimidated or insulted or whatever the, the emotion might have been, they were just happy as uh, clams singing a song that they, you know, always loved. And it was sort of, in some sense, it, it had to do with them. But they were taking the, the point of view of the singer in the song, right? It was just like like they were, like they were, uh, frat boys you know and 19 years old or something wow it was that's just, just it was wonderful. it was truly I was, I was in tears when it was done uh because it was it was it just showed it just shows you what a great country america is that we we uh we how can i say it we're like family you know we have our issues we got to get them out in the open but man you know we're all americans Absolutely. And the, what a fast, the, just the, the life of that song, like you're saying, you wrote it for, you know, your your generation's Vietnam War era. And then my generation comes along and, and it applies to the Iraq War. And there you are singing it during the Obama years for the military. Like, it's funny to watch, like, the world catch up to the song anyway, you know. Um, well, real quick, we, ha we have to hit at least Cosmos Factory because I don't know how. I don't know, again, what you were on for breakfast writing that album, but Run Through the Jungle, Traveling Band, Who Will Stop the Rain, Looking Out My Back Door, Long As I Can See the Light, Heard It Through the Grapevine was a cover. but And then Up Around the Bend, I, I, maybe the most famous of all of them on that. But, I mean, I, we'd be here all day if we went through all your great long backstories on all of them, but is there a way to sort of encapsulate all of them in terms of, you know, where you were in, in headspace and writing that that overall album? Like, how did you, how the hell did you crank out so many all for one album? That's That's unreal to me well i would stay up uh very late into the night um writing songs because i you know i basically i <laughs> at, at the end of 1968 when suzy q had been a big hit i hadn't hadn't i hadn't really recorded any of the uh the great ones yet but I looked around at our situation and saw what you know taking stock i was a one hit wonder with Suzy Q. And there are literally thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of one hit wonders. <laughs> and that just, just pushed me It motivated me to, okay, you've been talking about this your whole life. Now's the time, right? You just, you got to do it now. 
And that jet just kicked me into gear. And I started every day. I would stay up late, late, late at night trying to write songs and trying to come up with music for my band so that we could uh, push forward. Um, and the more I got into it, the more I could see I was the only one that was capable of doing it. There, I wasn't getting any uh, help from anybody else in the band. They just didn't know how to, you know, I had a, I think, Jason, what really happened was I, I evolved. There was some sort of a dimensional shift in my <laughs> um, brainwaves or whatever. And I mean, I really literally went to a different, you know, that place that I'd only kind of dreamt about. And now I was able to do it. And it, it, that was it was an amazing uh, way to feel. But I, I gave it all the gasoline that I could. I stayed up all night, you know, all night. Uh, uh, pushing and trying to come up with songs and riffs and musical ideas that would um, that I could fill a record with, you know, and and to keep the career going. Well, there was a place up ahead, and you were going, <laughs> you were going up around the bend to whatever that, right. that switch that had flipped in your brain, and just you know, just like we were saying that you know. Today's kids know Fortunate Son from Forrest Gump. A lot of them probably know Up Around the Bend from Remember the Titans or Guardians of the Galaxy or whatever. I mean, all these songs, keep, even the Cosmos Factory songs are shown popping up in, in movies and stuff everywhere. But um, I know we're sort of coming up somewhat up against the clock, but um, I want to hit the sixth album, Pendulum, really fast because I love Hey Tonight. But of course, my listeners will kill me if we don't get at least one soundbite on Have You Ever Seen the Rain? Um, I think I read somewhere that Fortunate Son and Have You Ever Seen the Rain just surpassed a billion streams this past March. Uh, they're in Spotify's Billions Club. Uh, so today's audiences listen to the heck out of it. But uh, uh, yeah, tell me about the writing of Have You Ever Seen the Rain really fast. Okay, well, um, <laughs> they say, um, you know, everything that goes up has to also come down. And with with all this success that the band was having after, you know, after many long years of uh, uh, sort of being uh, in, unknown, um, all the usual pressures came up right along with it. And uh, the, you know, the band became, it started to become more and more unhappy or ill at ease. You know, there's so many different ways you can, you can say it, but um, finally I, I could, it got to the point where it it was so sort of unpleasant, uh, especially for me because <laughs> I don't know why it is human nature, but uh, when somebody starts to shine and uh, out of a group of several people and the other people are not shining so much, uh, rather than getting busy and figuring out how they can also shine, what the first thing they usually do is start trying to knock down the person that is shining. I don't know why that I don't know why that is true, but it is very true in human nature. And that's what was happening to me within my band. It was like, oh, my goodness, I would hear these <laughs> these things, you know, said. And obviously, everybody was very unhappy. And finally, I decided I was going to write a song about it. It it seemed to kind of match that. Um, well, here we were having our shining, sunny day. You know, the day we had dreamed about since we were young. And yet it seemed instead of having this sunny day, the, there was rain falling down all over it. Well, there's a phenomenon in nature 
Uh, you've probably been part of it many times where you'll look straight up in the sky and it's a blue sky. And yet somehow rain is falling down, you know, from a cloud many miles away and the wind is pushing it or something. And it, so there you are on a sunny day with rain falling down. And it seemed to be such a compelling uh, metaphor for me uh, to write this song. But the, really the inspiration for that song and what that song is about is about my band breaking up. Wow. Yeah, I guess there was only one more album. Uh, Mardi Gras was right after that with Sweet Hitchhiker and a couple. But yeah, then CCR as the band broke up and then you you were off solo to the races. And final seconds, you know, I, I assume, you know, we'll hear all these hits at Wolf Trap as well as stuff from your solo career. I think you've just re-released your first two solo albums or you're reissuing them next week. The Blue Ridge Rangers and John Fogarty, right? So we're going to hear that and maybe, you know, Centerfield, Put Me In Coach, all, all that stuff. Or are we going to hear the solo stuff at the show too? Yeah, there's uh, solo stuff, but I'm really, since I'm so happy with uh, getting back the ownership of my earlier songs, uh, we sort of feature those a lot. I uh, What I say at the beginning of the show is, I just got my songs back and I'm going to do all of them. It's <laughs> pretty well true. And that's what we want to hear as fans. Uh, you know, we, we've we been listening to these songs for years and we when we come to see John Fogarty, we want to hear that. I saw... Gosh, I saw one of your great contemporaries, the great Bob Dylan, at Wolf at, at Wolf Trap a couple years back, and I was so excited. And he played maybe one of his hits. It was all, it was all of his newer stuff, but uh, he can do whatever he wants. He's Bob Dylan. But I'm glad that the John Fogarty is going to be playing all the great CCR stuff. Um, that's fantastic. Um, hey, thank you so much for such a deep dive on your career. Uh, this was fantastic. I, I I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. You got it, Jason. It was great to talk to you. I'll see you at Wolf Trap. Yes, John Fogarty, the legend of CCR and so many other stuff. Uh, it's going to be at Wolf Trap Saturday, August 19th. Get your tickets. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Our theme music is Scott Buckley's Clarion. Remember to give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.